This morning we are continuing in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're doing so by focusing on the last four verses of chapter 5, a chapter that has been the object of our attention for at least three weeks now, and which we'll complete our study of today, Lord willing. And if you've been with us for any of these uh, most recent studies, then you should at least, I hope, be aware of the fact that in this part of Romans, we have been looking once again into this concept of the righteousness of God that has continued to be the dominant theme of these opening chapters in Paul's letter. In particular, in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, we've seen some of the um, spiritual dynamics, if I can call it that, that lie behind both the fall of humankind into sin and misery through Adam and at the other end of the spectrum, the forgiveness and restoration of God's people through Christ. The same dynamic, the same principle of federal or representative headship is in operation in both of those scenarios. Adam, as a representative head of the human race, acted sinfully. And because of our solidarity with him, as Romans 5 makes absolutely crystal clear, but because of our solidarity with him, we are guilty in him and in that action. His sinning is our sinning. The condemnation that he brought about was not just upon him, but upon all who have descended from him, which is to say, every person who's ever lived or ever will live. In our previous studies, we've seen how absolutely crucial it is that we understand our connection with Adam. It's vital that we do not lose sight of this doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin to our account. It's essential that we keep straight in our minds the reality that our deepest problem is not just that we sin like Adam, although we do, nor is it our own sinfulness, uh, nor is it that our own sinfulness makes us liable to the judgment of God, although it does. But our prior and deeper problem before all of that is simply that long before we ever had a chance to demonstrate our sinfulness, long before we were even born, we sinned in Adam. Now, to some people, this is a notion they're simply unwilling to accept. They don't like the idea that they might be regarded as guilty because of something that someone else did. They find the very concept of that to be deplorable. But the problem is, if you reject the idea of Adam's imputed sin and guilt, that someone might act on your behalf and in a way that implicates you or affects you, then in rejecting that, you're rejecting the contrasting reality. You're rejecting the idea that you could also, by imputation, be declared righteous because of the deeds of another person who was also acting in the same sort of representative role, namely Jesus. In other words, if you reject the idea that Adam's sin could count as yours, then you lose the gospel. And if you lose the gospel... You're left all on your own. In a futile attempt at meriting your own forgiveness and attaining to a right standing with God, all under your own power and by your own efforts. And that simply cannot be done. Now up to this point, we've focused more on what might, we might call the bad news side of that headship dynamic that is on Adam's sin and its consequences for all humanity. This morning we're going to look a little more closely at the other side of the dynamic, at Christ's role as representative head of humanity, and specifically at the extent of that representation. 
We'll also look at this rather surprising comment that Paul makes about the law in verse 20 and how that connects with everything else he's been saying. And finally, we'll finish up by trying to summarize not only what Paul's been saying here in chapter 5 about the righteousness of God, but also with what he said previously on the same subject in chapter 1 and chapter 3 in order that we can have a more comprehensive understanding of this treatment, of his treatment of this matter thus far in Romans. Before we do all that, though, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your merciful kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that through him you have addressed the predicament that became ours when Adam fell into sin, carrying us all with him. We thank you not only that you did it, but for the manner in which you did it, in a way that is sure and permanent and unshakable, that gives us every reason to be confident and hopeful about today and about the future that you have prepared for us. Help us now as we turn to your word to hear the things you have for us on this occasion and by means of these verses. Shape and mold and sculpt us however you choose and teach us to delight in your choosing. Make the outcome of this to be greater glory on your part and greater adoration for ours. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read to you Romans 5. Uh, 12 to 21 in its entirety. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now in the particular verses before us this morning, verses 18 to 21, we have essentially a summary summation of everything that Paul has been talking about ever since verse 12 of this chapter. Even further, we have here the completed thought to a sentence that was started back in verse 12, as we saw in the previous study, but never finished. If you recall from that study, Paul had begun to express himself on, on this subject. In verse 12, how sin came into the world through one man, and then before he could complete that thought, he interrupted himself, not once but twice, to deal with a couple of things that apparently had occurred to him really mid-sentence. 
so to speak, and which he felt he had to say something about before finishing his original idea. And so he talked in verses 13 to 14 about how sin could be in the world even before the law was there. And then in verses 15 to 17, he talked about how even though there was an important similarity between Adam and Christ, the differences between them were far greater than the similarities. And further, he wanted to make it clear that what was wrought or brought about through Christ is far, far superior to what came about as a result of Adam's doing. And so having made these sort of two caveats, Paul's now returning, finally, in verses 18 to 21, to complete the thought that he began back in verse 12. And in that verse, he started out by talking about how sin came into the world through one man and then death through sin, which spread to all men. All of that, he recaps here in the first part of verse 18 with the words, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so he's recapping verse 12 there, and then he goes on to state the accompanying parallel. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So as we've seen before, the principle that results in our being condemned in and because of Adam's one trespass is the same principle that allows us to be justified because of Christ's one act of righteousness as Paul describes it here. Now what is Paul referring to with this language of one act of righteousness? Surely it's not Paul's intent to say that Christ had one and only one act of righteousness as if his death on the cross was it. It seems to me then that he's simply seeing the cross slash resurrection as the climax of Jesus' ministry that was as definitive in its effects as was the sin of Adam in its own. But it also seems to me that Paul would want to see the cross of Christ as the lens through which one might look at the whole of Jesus' life. His entire existence, from birth to resurrection and ascension, was one long, sustained, uninterrupted act of obedience. It was a path from which he never deviated, as the writer of Hebrews assures us, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so with that as his constant trajectory throughout his whole life, it's not surprising that, uh, and in fact entirely expected, at the end of his life, at the cross, he would go on to fulfill the things that he had come to accomplish on his father's behalf. So Paul tells us that Christ's act of righteousness was the action of one man that nevertheless had an effect for a plurality of men and women. But that leads us to ask the question, what was the extent of that plurality? On the surface, the answer would seem obvious. If the sin of Adam resulted in the condemnation of all men, meaning every single person who ever lived, then wouldn't the parallel action by Christ be effective for the same group? Isn't that what the passage says? One act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Doesn't all in the last part of the verse mean the same thing it does in the first part of the verse? To put the question another way, isn't Paul with these words teaching universalism? That all people ultimately are saved. One writer responds to that question in this way. We certainly have no liberty to insist that the all is invariably absolute and can never admit any qualification. For scripture itself often uses 
uh, that word relatively of all within a certain category or context or from a particular perspective. So, for example, on the day of Pentecost, the statement that God poured out His Spirit on all people clearly in the context does not mean every single human being in the world, but people of all categories, of all nations, age, and social strata, and of both sexes. When Luke declares that all who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord through Paul in Ephesus, he evidently means representatives from every part of the province, not every single person. So in Romans 5, the all men who are affected by the work of Christ cannot refer to absolutely everybody for a number of reasons. First, the two communities of people related to Adam and Christ are related to them in different ways. We're in Adam by birth, which is natural and universal, but we are in Christ only by new birth and by faith, which is spiritual and is not by definition universal. It's made clear in Romans 5.17, where those whose reign in life through Christ are defined as those who receive God's abundant provision of grace. The context shows then that all means all who receive God's grace. Thirdly, Paul emphasizes throughout Romans that justification is by faith, therefore not all people are justified, because clearly not all people have faith. And if all are not justified, all are not in Christ. And fourthly, Romans also contains solemn warnings. Chapter 2, that on the last day God's wrath will be poured out and that those who persist in their sinful self-seeking will perish. Much more could be said and a great deal more scripture evidence could be marshaled to make this point even stronger, but it's simply beyond question that those whom Christ represented and those who are in Him and so benefited benefited by His representative life and death are not, and they cannot be, the entire human race, but instead are all those who receive Him, trust Him, turn to Him. In other words, they're a subset of of the all that are in Adam, which is inclusive of all humanity. As a further indicator that the point being made here is not universalism, look at the very next verse, verse 19, and see there that Paul has changed his language. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. If Paul's great concern here was to communicate the universalistic nature of Christ's work, it seems highly unlikely that he would talk about it in one verse so comprehensively, only to follow it up in the very next verse with language such as the many, which is by its very nature uh, highly ambiguous. So the principle of the one for the many holds in the case of Adam as well as the case of Christ with the context determining in both situations how we are to read and understand Paul's statements about those who are in Adam versus those who are in Christ. Just as Adam's sin was imputed to all those who were in him, which is everyone, and so everyone sinned in Adam, so also is it true that Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to all those who are in him, who were in him, which is all those who, as verse 17 puts it, receive the abundance of grace. And it's both of those realities, the solidarity of all humanity in Adam and the solidarity of saved humanity in Christ that are and ought to be the very foundation of our motivation 
for the mission of the church. The fact that in Adam all died, the fact that all sinned in him and are condemned with him in that first trespass, that fact alone is as strong as any other motivator you can come up with for taking the gospel into all the world. The reason we have a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples is because long before we had a great commission, we had a great crisis. The crisis that ensued from the moment that Adam sinned. The, The crisis that has engulfed the entire human race in unrighteousness and has left everyone liable to the righteous judgment of a holy God. And along with that, not only is the fact of all humanity being united uh, to Adam in his sin a compelling motivation all on its own for bringing the gospel to the nations, it's equally compelling when we think about the fact that it's only those who are in Christ who will be delivered from condemnation and made right with God. Because the only ones who will be found in Christ in the end are those who, as we've seen, received God's gracious gift of his Son by faith. That is, those who have embraced the free gift of God's righteousness and place their hope and trust in that and not in anything they have done. But how in the world, how in the world will they do that? That's the very question Paul asks and answers later on in Romans 10. When he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So those who are in Christ are those who have received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. According to Romans 5.17, which is all of those who, to use the language of Romans 10, have called on the name of the Lord. But how will they do this unless they have heard about the Lord? And how will they hear about the Lord if you and I do not open our mouths? If you and I will not say the words, then they will not hear them. And they won't figure them out from just watching us. In fact, if anything, they'll be confused. Surely, they'll be confused. So it is the fact of our being in Adam creates the great crisis which calls forth the Great Commission to bring the gospel in order that people might hear it and embrace God's free gift of righteousness and by so doing show that they are in fact in Christ and so belong to that family of those who have been saved by grace through faith. The second thing I want you to see this morning is not only Christ's role as the second Adam, that is the second representative head of humanity, but I also want you to notice very briefly this rather curious comment that Paul makes about the law. Verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. As Stott points out, verse 20 comes across in some ways as a digression or a slight departure from the topic at hand. However, it's likely a much needed departure, and he explains it this way. He says, Paul has been developing his analogy between Adam and Christ, but his Jewish readers may have been asking if there was any room in his scheme for Moses. What about Moses? What then was the purpose of the law? It was added so that the trespass might increase, says Paul. Part of what Paul meant by this, he's already explained in previous places, that the law reveals sin, doesn't cure it. It displays and defines sin. It doesn't get rid of it. 
The law turns sin into transgression, since where there is no law, there is no transgression. In Romans 7, Paul is going to add that the law even provokes sin. These statements must have been shocking to Jewish people who thought of the Mosaic law as having been given to increase righteousness, not to increase sin. But Paul says the exact opposite. And once again with his words, Paul shows his continued abiding concern for his Jewish brothers and sisters whom he knows need to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul also knows that if they were anything like him, if their background was anything like his, then, uh, like his once was, then they will struggle with this whole notion of obtaining a righteousness apart from the law. He knows that many of them, like him, had a view of the law that was in fact unhelpful because it was a view that saw law-keeping as a means to obtaining a right standing with God, a way of meriting God's favor. So over against that kind of background, Paul has taken the opportunity several times this letter, whenever it's presented himself, to make comments about the law and its function that would perhaps have seemed jarring and even abrasive to his Jewish listeners' ears. But he does it anyway. And he does it because he wants to take every opportunity to move them away from an illegitimate use of the law and back towards some of its legitimate uses as that which reveals sin, as that which defines sin, as that which makes us transgressors. And as we see here, as that which even and perhaps surprisingly increases sin. But how precisely does Paul see the law as something that increases sin? In what way does the law do that? Well, simply put, the law increases sin, not in the sense of multiplying sins, but rather in the sense of multiplying the awareness of sin. Thanks to the law, the breadth and depth of human sin has become more clear and more apparent than it it ever was before. It's sort of like what happened the day that I first learned that in basketball there's this thing called the three-second rule, which means basically you can't just camp out in the free-throw area in front of the basket indefinitely if your team has the ball. You can hang out for three seconds when you've got to get moving out of the area, out of the lane. Apparently you're supposed to share this space with everybody. I did not know this for a long time when I was learning to play basketball. It was all news to me. And here's the thing. The appearance of that rule finally in my life did not make me a three-second lane violator. I was already one of those. The rule just revealed more clearly than ever one of my many deficiencies as a basketball player. Because it wasn't, I wasn't just an occasional lane violator. I was a frequent lane violator. I was horrible. I was like a three-minute lane violator. <laughs> Maybe I never left it. I don't know. But that painful revelation about myself also led to a revelation of something else. It revealed the incredible graciousness and patience of many of the people that I'd played with up to that point and who had determined for some reason not to make an issue out of with me even though they had every right to. I mean, I must have been a pain to play with. But they didn't point it out to me every time. It's a crude analogy, I admit, but the giving of the law functioned in much the same way, making evident the already pervasive presence of sin in the hearts and minds of men and women, and so making their need of mercy and grace that much more clear. And with that, making the kindness and patience of God toward His people that much more apparent and, frankly, amazing. 
The last thing I want us to do with a little bit of time we have left is to very quickly summarize what we've learned thus far in this letter about the righteousness of God, starting what we saw all the way back in Romans 1. Romans 1, 16 to 17, where this concept of the righteousness of God was first introduced, we learned the phrase that the phrase the righteousness of God is referring in the main, not to a quality of God, although he does have that quality, and not even an activity of God, although God's actions are righteous all the time, but rather it's referring primarily to God's bestowing, crediting his righteousness upon unworthy sinners, thereby giving them a new status before God, a right standing before God. Later on in this, uh, the letter of Romans, chapter 3, verses 19 26, we learned several important things about the righteousness of God. We learned that the reason we need a righteousness from God and of God is because in ourselves, we, all of us, are broken and sinful. We all fall, fall short of the glory of God that we're meant to image and are condemned by our unrighteousness in the sight of God. We learned that the righteousness of God is not one that comes or can come through any sort of keeping or possessing of the law of God. It's a right standing with God that comes about not as a consequence of something that we do, but as a consequence of our trusting in something that Jesus did. Further, we learned that the only reason that we have access to this gracious gift of God's righteousness is because God is determined in His heart to be kind and gracious to His people. Period. God's just determined for his own reasons and under no obligation or compulsion to freely dis- to bestow upon undeserving people the gift of righteousness. Even further, we learned that the ground or the basis of our righteousness is the cross of Christ, at which four things took place at least. We were justified, which is simply the Bible word used to describe God's determination to pardon or forgive a sinful person and to accept them as righteous as in standing in a right relationship with himself on account of their having been credited with the righteousness of another. We were redeemed, which is kind of marketplace language, the concept that the Bible employs to talk about how the penalty or the wage for our sin is death. Now Christ has paid our bill, so to speak, in our place, and by that price ransomed us and redeemed us and delivered us from slavery to sin into the freedom we have in Christ. Also at the cross, God's wrath was propitiated. It was dealt with. It was addressed. At the cross of Christ, God's perfectly justifiable anger against humanity was fully satisfied by God himself in the person of his son because there would have been no other way for it to be fully addressed. Finally, at the cross of Christ, God's reputation was vindicated. God's character, the fact that he is a just God and a holy God who always and by definition does right and is right, that character was defended and demonstrated at the cross. All of that resulted from our study of Romans 3 and then to that already rich understanding of the righteousness of God on our most recent studies of Romans 5, we've been looking at what we might call, again, the spiritual dynamics that lie behind the righteousness of God. We've looked at this principle of representative headship that is the source of both our greatest misery and our greatest relief. The source of our misery because in, uh, we, all humanity, are tied to Adam and in solidarity with him as we've seen. We sinned in Adam and in and through his sinning and are condemned as a result. By this same principle, it's in the source of our greatest relief and joy in that we, by faith, have become recipients of the grace of God in Christ and through our being in Christ, we are credited with a righteousness that's not even our own. His act of obedience, his life of holiness is imputed to us. His passive obedience, taking the penalty for sin, is also credited to us. So this salvation that we have in Christ, this righteousness through this undeserved gift of God's righteousness, as we saw last week, is a great, great salvation. 
What we lost in Adam has been restored, but it's then been immeasurably surpassed by what we gained in Christ, who's not merely undone what Adam did, but he has lifted us up. And he's moved us well past it to the place where we are even said in the scriptures to be seated in the heavenly places in and through and with Christ Jesus. And this gift of God's righteousness, this costly, precious gift, is not something that is ours by mere declaration. Right? It's not ours because God has simply looked the other way with regard to our sin and unworthiness. It's not the action of a capricious, whimsical, unpredictable God but of a loving, heavenly Father who does everything well. And it comes out of the coordinated, intentional movement of His infinitely deep character and person. This righteousness that is ours has come uh, not come at the cost of God's integrity, has not come at the cost of His holiness in any way, shape, or fashion. Every part of who God is, His love and His mercy and His justice and His goodness, every part of Him was in full agreement with what He has He has done on our behalf through the Lord Jesus with no compromise, nothing left unaddressed, no loose ends. In other words, and as we've seen before, God has not just saved us. He has saved us rightly. And He has saved us securely. And He's saved us permanently and unshakably. It's not just the love of God, but it's the very righteousness of God that has saved us. As Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 9, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Father, help us to take this great truth of the righteousness of God as something that is more than just um, interesting, detailed theological information or doctrine on its own. I firmly believe, Father, if we don't know how something applies, then we really don't know what it means. So help us, Father, to know what difference this truth makes. And how the things that you've been showing us in these opening chapters of Romans point very clearly to the fact that we live in a world that is lost and broken. Every direction that we look, everywhere we turn, There are people that do not know you, that have rejected you, that show daily that they, like we, were in Adam when he fell. And the evidence of that just keeps piling up. Father, please compel us with a real compassion for those um, who, like many of us here this morning, were right there with them, not knowing about this gift of your righteousness, not knowing about the mercy that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, move us and compel us by this doctrine to build relationships with those all around us that do not know you, that are already in our path because you've placed them there for that very reason. And show us, Father, how to live 
the gospel, to show it, to speak of it, move us to open our mouths that they might hear the words, they might hear the good news, they might respond in faith and receive this abundant provision of grace that you've made. Use us, Father, with our imperfect words in our incomplete sentences and uh, in all of our flaws, Father, use us to be your instruments for this great purpose. Um, And so show by these actions we do understand what all of this is about and what difference the righteousness of God makes. Father, help us to do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to take up an offering for those who want to support the work of this church and ministries through this church. And uh, we'll also be singing an offertory song together during the collection. Please remain seated during the singing of this song.